Welcome to Down There Aware, a podcast bringing attention to gynecologic cancers in women's healthcare. Disclaimer We cover many topics which some may find uncomfortable, and while we feel it is an important conversation to have, we understand it may not be for everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Down There Aware. I'm Alex. And I'm Mary, Alex's mama. And today we have joining us Mariette Peters. We're so excited to have you um, in our recognition of Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. Thank you for joining us. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Mariette. Well, thank you for having me. This is my pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed listening to the podcast, so it's, it's, a, it's fun thank to be on it. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> yes. So um, like I said, my name is, is Mariette Peters. I live in California, in Northern California. Um, although I've lived all over the world. Um, and I am a two-time gynecologic cancer survivor. So um, wow. I was diagnosed both with um, endometrial cancer when I was 38. Um, and that was 14 years ago. So at that point, that was still a really unusual thing if you didn't have Lynch syndrome to be diagnosed premenopausal. Absolutely. Now, not so uncommon. That's what we're hearing. <laughs> so that's that landscape's changed. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with endometrioid ovarian cancer. Um, I was, well, depending on how you look at it, I was lucky, not lucky, um, maybe not so lucky to get cancer at all. Um, but lucky in the sense that because of the previous cancer diagnosis, they had been keeping a really close tap on me. Yeah. So um, when they found the ovarian cancer, they found that at stage one, wow. which, as you know, from That's ovarian very... cancer is really unreal. Unusual. Yeah, yes. it's very rare. And since um, ovarian cancer is the most deadly of all the gynecologic cancers, um, that's the one you want to catch early. Right. For sure. So can you um, just explain a little bit for our listeners and for me, um, what is endometrioid ovarian cancer as opposed to just ovarian cancer? So there's a whole bunch of different kinds of ovarian cancer. It's actually, uh, they're actually, they're, they're now looking, they're now starting to look at ovarian cancer. And when I say they, I mean conventional oncology is, is now starting to look at ovarian cancer as maybe it's not just one disease. It's actually a multitude of diseases mm. um, because there's so many subtypes and, and they're quite differentiated. Mm. So um, you've, got, you've got the epithelial um, ovarian cancer. So there's a bunch of types in there. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, the clear cell. And then there's another one that I'm spacing on right now. Um, apologies. But those, the other epithelial, like something like 80% of, um, of ovarian cancers are epithelial ovarian cancer. And mm-hmm. the most common of those is high-grade serous um, ovarian. And then there's low-grade serous ovarian, which is quite uncommon. And then endometrioid um, ovarian, which is also not very common. Mm-hmm. And endometrioid ovarian means it grows out of endometrial tissue. Okay. Which is most commonly um, endometriosis. Sure. So do they connect your endometrial cancer with the endometrioid ovarian cancer? So you would think so. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I asked. I'm trying to be clear here. (laughs) So logically, those would seem to be related. So um, yeah. So no, my my gynecologist was quite clear that these were two distinct and separate incidents. Wow. 
Um, however, when I kept pushing at him, because I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> there has to be some connection. Right. It just doesn't, right? He acknowledged that biologically, they were similar. Oh. Um, and, and he described it as um, that my body just has a knack for turning endometrial tissue into cancer cells. Well, lucky you. I'm like, great. How do I, how do oh. I uh, get rid of that knack? I don't yeah. like that knack. <laughs> <laughs> to which they responded, well, you just, well, you know, no, there's no, you know, because it seemed to be kind of a fluke that I got any of them at all. There was no, like, I don't have Lynch syndrome. I don't, um, you know, yes, I'm a little overweight, but I'm not overweight enough for them to determine that that's a factor or Mm -hmm. for the research to determine that it's a factor. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they, they know so little about it because so little research is done on the gynecologic cancers that it's kind of like, no, I don't know. You're so yeah. lucky. Well, well and that's that... the reason why we're, you know, trying to get the word out and yeah. help people understand that, you know, it's one of the most of the, you know, all of the five cancers together, they affect so many women, yet they're so underfunded. They're so under-researched. Um, and so it's it's just really important. I mean, I had never heard of uterine cancer when I got it. I hadn't, I didn't know it exist. you know, I guess now I assume like, yeah, every part of the body can get cancer, but it was never a thing on the table for me, right? It was never a question. So and you we, don't have you don't have Lynch syndrome either, and you were thirty two when you yeah, right? but still, no, Alex, I'm talking about oh, you. Alex, I was thirty eight. Yeah, <laughs> she she has no Lynch syndrome, and she was thirty two when she was diagnosed, which you know that goes against what they tell us. Yeah, that um, conventional wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> so the research does need to take place and there does need to be a bigger conversation. Because For endometrial sure. cancer is actually, it's the most common of all the, mm. endom- of all the mm-hmm. gynecologic cancers. And, and so, but it, it speaks you know, to get political. Um, it does speak to how little research is done on women's issues mm-hmm. um, and, and how that's, you know, dismissed to a certain degree by the larger medical community. I mean, I I think that's changing um, because there's a lot of people who are really pushing against it. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, it, yeah. It definitely (laughs) has been um, slower to progress than overall health concerns and the overall population. And, you know, we, um, mom and I share a genetic heart condition where, um, you know, little research is done into women's heart conditions and how different heart conditions affect women differently. And so a lot of women don't know they're having a heart attack because they're looking for the symptoms we've all been beaten into our heads, but women experience it differently. So, you know, it's the same thing that we, we just want to get the word out and help people understand that it's, it's an important issue to, to research. Well, and we, Alex and I have even discussed that um, just within women's cancer, the women's cancer discussion, breast cancer really has taken the front row, you know, and um, there are a lot of different reasons for that, but um, the gynecologic cancers are just so important to be recognized as you know, being overwhelming for women and needing some research and needing to get the discussion out there so there can be a better understanding. Um, We've talked a lot about just the fact that doctors say, oh, you're 32. This can't be uterine cancer. 
And Alex was told that by more than one doctor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so there needs to be some education out there that um, you just don't say that to a patient. <laughs> and like you said, and we found out from talking with Mary Jennifer in um, the oncologist at Shands that um, it's changing. There are more and more younger women being diagnosed with gynecologic cancers. And and the, it hasn't caught up. They haven't caught up. Like the right. doctor, the medical they they don't they haven't caught up with that information right so talk to us a little bit about how you were first diagnosed and what led to that and on that whole process because we all have a story it seems that it's never just oh I found this and then I was diagnosed there's always a little more to it oh no yeah um Mm. I had been told I had had classic symptoms which were what just so our listeners Um, understand I'd always had an extremely heavy period um, very painful. Mm. Um, intercourse was very painful, like excruciating. Can't even have mm. it painful. Mm. Um, and um, a penetrative intercourse to be super clear because there's all different mm-hmm. kinds, right? Right. Um, and then uh, and lots of spotting, which mm. um, increased with um, strenuous activity, ah. and um to the point where that it was ridiculous. Like I would, I would go on a really heavy hike, like do a, like go trekking or, or, or do a mountain, uh, you know, hike, do a peak climb or something. And, and I would have what would be considered a normal flow for most women. Mm. <laughs> and then that that period, your spotting. that's my spotting. Yeah. yeah. And then my regular flow was like, okay, you know, how many tampons, how many super tampons? And then when you were describing like putting the pads and, and overlaying them, I'm like, oh yeah. That's familiar. <laughs> or those oh, really wow. lovely ones that you wore the belts with. Uh-huh. up a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so your doctors just wrote that off as that you just got the luck of the draw with the periods that way? I was, so it had always been that way. And then I was on birth control. I had been put on birth control at the age of 16 in order to control it. Um, right. And so I had 10 years of like, you know, it was kind of like, woohoo. It was, you know, my cycle was controlled. Of course, birth control also increases your risk for endometrial cancer. Right. Um, and then, um, and then I went off it because I got really into holistic medicine and natural medicine. And I was, you know, I was, you know, eating all organic and vegetarian and you know, the whole one point I was a Reiki practitioner. Um, and, um, <laughs> so you tried everything. <laughs> I tried everything. And then I was like, ah, yeah, no Western medicine. I don't like Western medicine. Mm. They over medicate you. They do surgery at the drop of a hat, you know, I don't know. And then, um, and so I wasn't going to doctors that often. And then um, I also did a lot of gig work, which we didn't call it that at the time, but that's what it's called now. Um, and so I, and at the time we didn't have, you know, mandated health insurance. Mm. So I often would not have health insurance. Um, right. So, um, and then I had a history of depression also, which factors in, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, finally I got to a doctor uh, I, I had a job where I had health insurance and I saw a doctor who was a good doctor. Um, and at the time I was living in Manhattan. So I think my chances of, of getting a good doctor were probably higher because of geography. Right. And, 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 and you know, like doctor density. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she took me seriously. Mm. 
She. That, she. that may be a factor. Yeah, a factor. And she was young. A huge she factor. Was she yeah. and she was young. And um and so she took me seriously and she sent me for an ultrasound. And um and the ultrasound was inclusive. So I had a couple of ultrasounds. And so she basically said, hey, you know, we can't, we think, it looks like you've got polyps. Not really sure. You know, what I would recommend is doing a DNC. And then, you know, A, we'll get the polyps out if that's what it is. And then B, you know, we'll have a clearer sense of what's going on. I was like, okay, great. And so when they tested the DNC tissue, um, when they did the biopsy on the tissue, they were like, oh, you have endometrial hyperplasia, uh, abnormal, a, abnormal hyperplasia with atypia. Mm. which is the stage immediately prior to developing the cancer. Right. And, um, and so I was like, huh, what? <laughs> and she's like, well, the usual, the, the, the standard of care is to have a hysterectomy. And I was like, I'm 38. I mean, no, I don't, you know, and I never wanted children. So this mm-hmm. is, this is what makes my story a little unique. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm not a woman who ever wanted children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just wasn't something that, I I didn't feel it biologically and I didn't yeah. and I just didn't, you know, I wasn't interested. Um and um but I also didn't want to lose a major organ. Like yeah. I, I, I had it in my head that oh I'll be less whole, right? If you mm-hmm. take out my, you know, I don't want that. And and oh, you know, the US they 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 uh you know, they're so keen on surgery and and chemo and radiation and stuff and i'm like there must be a different way to do it somebody must be doing this differently this must not be the only answer mm-hmm. and then i um and she was like well you know they're, they're starting to do trials with 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 magestrol this is the very beginning there were two mm-hmm. I mean, like like three trials that have been done in other countries like in mm-hmm. japan and germany with it um and um you know, we can try you on that and, and see what happens. I was like, great. <laughs> yeah. So I took the magestrol, um, which for those uh, who are listening who don't know what that is, that's a synthetic progesterone, um, which is, uh, they think that, uh, they, th- they speculate that um, most endometrial cancers are caused by uh, excessive estrogen in the body. And so if you, um, you know, it's basically a hormone imbalance, right? So if you if you treat it with progesterone, then that helps to bring things back into balance, and it can it can reduce the expression of the cancer cells and actually you know sort of scroll it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was like, fantastic. And then uh, so I started it and got really sick. I had oh. heart palpitations. I had shortness of breath. I had like when you know the fine print on the thing where they say mm-hmm. you know these are really rare side effects, but if you get them, like. That was that. Oh wow! So um, I said, okay. Well, what if I did this with, um, you know, what if I did bioidentical hormones? And I had a holistic MD. My my regular internist was was had had studied integrative medicine as well as being an MD, and so she put me on bioidentical hormones. We tried that instead, and then I was doing acupuncture twice a week. You know, so I was doing all this stuff, mm-hmm. yeah, herbs, you know, all kinds of things. And then three months later, we went and did another DNC to see if it, had, you know, where I was at. And I had cancer cells at that point. Mm. Oh wow! So and and she she was clear. And at this point, I was seeing I was seeing a gynecolo- gynecologic oncologist. I had been mm-hmm. referred to a gynecologic oncologist immediately, um, mm. even, with, even with the hyperplasia. 
because I had these questions about alternative treatments and stuff. And like, sure. I was like, I don't know, you know, like, go, go <laughs> yeah. see this person. They may know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then, mm. um, so, uh, at that point, um, she said, well, I'm enrolling for a trial on Megase. If you want to try it again, the Magestral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, <laughs> I'll try, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, yeah, anything. Answer heart palpitations. Yeah. 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 Monitor closely. Um, and, um, and, and, and she was clear that, that, um, oftentimes with endometrial cancer or with endometrial, with, when you have, um, advanced hyperplasia, there are cancer cells that are already in the body at that, mm-hmm. already in the uterine lining at that point, sure. but they're just not picked up in the sample that they biopsy. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, I think with something, if I remember the statistics, it was something like 50% of people with um hyperplasia that progresses to to stage one endometrial cancer had oh. the cancer cells at the point of the endometrial hyperplasia um yeah. abnormal hyperplasia hyperplasia diagnosis mm-hmm. so she was like you know did it progress to it or was it already there we can't really say okay um and you know might the bioidentical hormones have worked maybe if it had been caught earlier mm-hmm. but who knows Right. right. There's no way. Right. To so then, in the meantime, I moved. Um, major life change. Yeah. <laughs> back to Cal- I was living in New York. I moved back to California. Wow. And so I got a new oncologist who was a friend of my oncologist in New York. Um, and so she referred me to him. And he was the head of gynecologic oncology at UCSF at the time. So I thought, okay, I'm pretty good hands, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and and he was like, okay, you can stay enrolled in the trial if you want. Okay, but I want you to go down to the library in the basement and please check out, you know, he wrote down some studies for me. He's like, have them give you these studies to read. This is, you know, 2007, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> there wasn't much available online. Right. And so I took those home. I took the studies home and I read them. And, um, and sure enough, I, I was like, oh. I'm not a candidate for this trial. Not really. Oh, wow. Um, because, and I, and I think it's changed somewhat now, but I'm not sure. So um, at the time the, it would, they were, the, the research was, that had been done was very clear that for people to benefit, that, that the, that the, 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 the magestral was effective at, at shrinking the cancer and, and reducing the cancer and bringing it back to a state of hyperplasia in a, a large percentage of, of cases. However, um, it's a temporary thing. Mm. And and it's really designed for women who who want who haven't gotten pregnant yet and want to get pregnant. Uh, and are in a position to get pregnant. Yeah. Right. So they're in a relationship like like they right. like, their ducks are kind of already in a row and, yeah. and they haven't yet, right? And even with that, even if the treatment is successful and they're in a position to get pregnant and they are to try immediately upon success of treatment, um, it was only something like 30% of the women were able to conceive without mm. like uh, some kind of horm- some kind of hormonal intervention or, or uh, you know, and, wow. and, and I was like, A, I'm, I'm pushing the upper boundaries age wise. Yeah. B, I don't really want to be pregnant. I just don't want to lose my uterus. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and so 
I came away from that going, yeah, I better get this out. And so mm. I went back to the doctor and said, okay, let's have the surgery. Um, and then I, 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 I struck a very hard bargain with them because at the time the protocol was to remove everything, to take the ovaries out, to take mm-hmm. everything, um, regardless of age. Mm. And I said, mm, no, I'm still using them. Like, yeah, they may not be working that effectively, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to. But they're still, still doing something. Them. Yeah. Doing something. And I really, right. if, if we can avoid my going through surgical menopause at the age of 38, on top of everything else, that'd be really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he was like, so I had to push really hard. And so that's 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 a lesson to all your listeners. You you it, it, it may be an unpleasant conversation. It may be difficult. Yeah. But you need to push hard for yeah. for what you think is right for you and your body and your treatment. Yeah, trust your gut. Trust, trust your, your gut. gut. Just yeah. just and and he struck a deal with me. And he said, okay, if I get in there and the ovaries look fine, then I'll leave them. But if it looks like there's anything even remotely suspicious, I can take them out. I said, well, that's fair, right? Yeah. And the first thing he said to me after the surgery was that I had I had beautiful ovaries. I was a prime candidate <laughs> for, for egg donation. And I was like, well, except for the age thing. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That is quite a story. And, you know, and it really echoes a lot of what we've heard and even my own story where you had to fight for yourself. There, you know, were few, if any, medical professionals in your corner who, you know, believed you. It was it was something that you really had to kind of get the gumption up and do it yourself, which you shouldn't have to, right? But um, it's it's wonderful that you were able to do that. So after your hysterectomy, did you have any other treatments or was that just so, your main treatment? It was stage one A, so that was my only treatment. And then yep. and then they did well, well. We'll just wait and we'll just monitor you closely. So the the two years of three mm-hmm. of um, exams every three months, and then mm-hmm. every six months for the next three years, and at, at at five years annual exams. Yeah, um, and did your exams include uh, PET scans or CT scans, ultrasound? No. Ah, no. yeah. Um, it, it, the, the doctors that I had at the time, they didn't want to do any of that because, of course, you know, this cumulative radiation is right, also right. cancer causing. So if you can avoid doing that, mm-hmm. um, in, in the beginning, they were still doing um, smears of the pelvic uh, of the of the vaginal cuff. Mm-hmm. And it was a different it, they, they weren't they weren't um, testing for cervical cancer, of course, because I had right. no products any longer. Right. Um, but it was a test uh, to there was some other test that they were looking for to mm-hmm. see mm. if they could see if there was any kind of abnormalities that were developing at the cuff, because if the cancer was going to return, the cuff was the most logical uh, place yeah. for it to recur. Yeah. Um, okay. And, well, and just um, so for our listeners, the vaginal cuff, um, I, that's what I have too. So when you have a hysterectomy and they remove your cervix, they can't just leave it open. So they, they seal it up and that's what they call the cuff. Yes. And so, um, Mariette, when you um, were at that point, how what led you to the endometrioid ovarian cancer diagnosis? I mean, that it seems like you could have kind of breathed easy, and and I did. Yeah, I did breathe easy. I, I mean, I had all these plans where, like, oh, I'm going to overhaul my life because this is, you know, cancer is a symptom and and of, of greater disease in my life. So let's know turn some of that upside down i did make a number of changes mm-hmm. um and um 
and then kind of like you said breathed easy and was like yeah okay, you know i'm 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 fine now it's years later and you know i went for my annual exams and then um and then here's a really big les- lesson for all of your listeners when you go for your annual pelvic exam make sure that they also do a rectal exam ah interesting not pleasant um, sure sure but it's what saved me so wow because of where the tumor was, the ovarian cancer tumor was on my right ovary, um, it was in the back. Mm. And so when she went in for the regular pulp, you know, just just to feel in, just on the in the in the up and you know through my my vagina, mm-hmm. um, uh, she didn't feel anything. It wasn't until she went in through the rectum and then palpated the area between mm-hmm. the rectum and the vagina that she found the tumor. Wow. That, at that what? point, it was 13 centimeters. Oh, my Whoa. goodness. Yeah. So there's a lot of hope oh, in wow. there for things yeah. to hide. Yeah. Right? But what a great information to, mm-hmm. ha- you know, to be able to get the word out because who would have thought? Yeah. Don't skip the rectal exam. And if your doctor's not offering it or thinks it's unnecessary, insist on it. Yeah. yeah. And you can. Mm-hmm. And and what we've learned from talking with someone else, if the doctor doesn't want to do it, you say, would you mind writing in my chart that you refused to do a rectal exam when I and requested it? And more often it? than not, that will get They'll them do to it. do it, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, just so they don't have to have that kind of, you know, mark on their career. And on the chart note, um, it's very important to get copies of all of your medical records. Yes, and not only records of surgeries um, and, and, and active treatment, but also records of all of your doctor's visits and the conversations mm. that you have with your doctors. Because sometimes what will happen is you read the record of the visit and go, wait, I didn't talk about that. Mm. Or that's not how that happened. Yeah. Wow. And so you can catch information at that point that actually wasn't told to you. And then ah. So it's a good idea to stay on top of that to make sure that it aligns with your memory. Yeah, yeah. that's a really good tip for sure. Yeah. yeah. So if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were 38 or even earlier, would you do anything differently or what would you say to your yourself before diagnosis? I would, regardless of what my beliefs about the medical system were, I would get a gynecological um, exam every year. And if you suspect something is up with your body, that something is not normal, if you if you have even an inkling that you might have endometriosis, it takes seven years for women to be de- traditionally di- to be to be diagnosed with endometriosis. Okay? Wow. And and what that seven years is is a lot of women being told, oh, it's just your cycle, and they go away, and they come back, and they have the same symptoms, and they bring it up again, and it's this back and forth that happens until they finally get fed up and go, no, and then demands an ultrasound or demands a, a CAT scan or an MRI or some kind of scan that will, we'll, you know, we'll take a look at it, but yeah. it'll, it'll show it more clearly, mm-hmm. and, um, and so I would say push Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Advocate for yourself. And don't and, and don't don't think that because you're young, cancer isn't a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't be, don't be paranoid about it, but but just be, hey, you know, let's I, I, I'm concerned about this. I think there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. You may not think there's something wrong, but I want you to test it anyway. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, I, had, I had one woman describe it was an ovarian cancer survivor. Oh, she survived stage four ovarian cancer. Mm. And and the reason she survived is that she went into the hospital to get scans done or to get, you know, to get tested. And she refused to leave the hospital until they gave her the test that she wanted. And they didn't want to. She was there for like 24 hours. Oh, they wow. They kept trying to get her to go home. And she was like, no, there's something wrong. Wow. Like, Seriously. Mm. And if she had gone home and waited a couple of months until she could get a doctor's appointment, she would have died. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she was young. She was in her she was in her forties, I think. Mm. And that's very similar to, you know, our episode um with Johanna, who was with a vulvar cancer survivor who pushed and pushed and pushed for a biopsy. She said, just do a biopsy and tell me what it is. And you know, and it took hers took seven years. Um, and it, you know, it just blows my mind that a biopsy an ultrasound, a pelvic exam, an MRI, in the scheme of everything that we're looking at, it's not that expensive. And it's it's really worth it in the long run to catch it early. Because if we know anything about cancer, it is that if you catch it early, you have a much better shot yeah. at getting rid of it and surviving. Well, and it, it'll update our uh, listeners just a little, but that's exactly what we're in the midst of doing with Alex um, when her CT showed something on her ovary and they're wanting to put off an ultrasound. And we are saying, no, not only has she already had a cancer diagnosis, but my sister, her aunt died with ovarian cancer and um, there's no reason to wait. It's It's something we need to push. And so we've we're in the midst of that push right now. And it's, and it's the same, you know, song and dance that we hear is, well, typically that's just for me, that's just a fluid filled cyst. It'll go away in a couple months. It'll go away in your next cycle. It'll, and I'm like, okay, but I was diagnosed with endometrial cancer at 32. That's not typical. So mm -hmm. can we pretend for a second that maybe I don't fit into the mold you're trying to create or trying to force me into? And it sounds like that was very much your experience as well was until the second one. So then once once she found the the, the lump, mm. I was sent immediately to ultrasound. Wow. Well, like the same cool. day. And and she said the reason like anybody else, we would take a wait and see. But because you mm -hmm. have a history of cancer, we don't want to take a wait and see. On the off chance that it's a it's cancer recurrence. Not worth sure. it. Sure. And and what was the um, ovarian the endometrioid ovarian cancer staged at with that thirteen centimeter? One B. Oh, okay. That's, well, that that's awesome, really. Yeah, that, it, yeah. that it was found that early. Yeah. And so okay. you ovarian have... ovarian cancer surgery only, no chemo. I mean, that's, exactly. That's practically unheard of. Oh wow! But no, what did... a testament to your advocating for yourself mm -hmm. and pushing because of your gut instinct and doctors who are a little bit on it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But you also had to find them too. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, kudos to you for doing that, pushing, yeah. you know. So Alex, I would say definitely push back. Just be like, yeah. no, there's no question. You have to do it. Mm -hmm. We are, we definitely are. And, you know, being in COVID quarantine has kind of made it a little bit challenging with um, going into the office and not being able to and, you know, things like that. So we're dealing with phone calls and emails. And so, um, but yes, that is definitely something that we are adamant about that there's just no reason not to do it. Um, and no, you, know, you can't do an ultrasound over video. So exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
So right. come on. <laughs> yeah. So for your ovarian cancer, they was your treatment just to go back in and remove your ovaries? Yeah. Okay. So the treatment was to go back in, remove the ovaries and any, uh, and he kept saying fallopian tubes. I was like, no, they took the fallopian tubes out the first time. And he was like, no, no, no there's a little bit of fallopian tube left. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, oh interesting. Wow. And that was where the cancer started. It was, it was, it was in the fallopian, it was an endometrial tissue, endo- endometriosis tissue that was in the fallopian tube right at the point where a joint, it came out of the ovary. Oh, wow. And um, not came over, but you know, where it tapped yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. And um, which is common with endometrioid ovarian cancer. Mm. Um, and um, and then they removed uh, half of the omentum and a whole bunch of um, lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. Just as a precaution, pretty much? Just as a precaution. Yeah. Well, it's partly a precaution. Well, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a precaution in the sense that they take it out so they can stage it properly. Yeah. Um, because until they actually test some of the en- the omentum tissue and the and the you know a, a lymph nodes lymph nodes the 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 lymph nodes that it was spread to um, uh-huh. being guinal and a couple of others um, if, until they test that and are sure that there's no cancer in there they can't yeah. really be certain that it's mm-hmm. a stage one B mm-hmm. and that's and a lot of times when when cancers recur i mean this isn't necessarily the stage with like you've got like three c or four right but if you've got a a stage one or a stage two and it recurs quickly a lot of times the reason it recurred quickly is because they actually didn't get it all it wasn't staged properly Mm. the first time they didn't remove Mm. everything which is why when you have an endometrioid an endometrial cancer or a ovarian cancer or a vulvar or any of these cancers especially ovarian have to see a gynecologic oncologist mm-hmm. and not a regular oncologist mm-hmm. because the gynecologic oncologist is the one that has the expertise in how to remove the cancer safely mm-hmm. um, and how to debulk properly and, and and all of that because they do them often. Right, right. Yeah. And a regular oncologist isn't going to see that many cases of ovarian cancer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to really know what to do with it. Right. Mm. And if so, you don't have a gynecologic con- oncologist like in your area, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of a trek to get to one. Because which, if you live in a rural or remotely, then that's sure totally possible, and mm-hmm. and that happens all the time. Um, make sure that if you're seeing a regular oncologist, that they're in collaboration with a gynecologic oncologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And surgery is done by the gynecologic oncologist mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, how are you doing now? I'm great now. Um, Yay. Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, I mean, when they get it early, when they get it at stage 1A, I think it's like the 95% chance of, of, of no evidence of disease disease at five years, the magic five years, right? Um, So so what surveillance are they doing for you? Just, um, back to the every three months of exams. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. The the same song dance. The same song dance. Yeah. (laughs) But in the meantime, I've taken a much sort of steeper overhaul of my life, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like, okay, it, I had a, I had a, what I view as a related cancer, um, mm-hmm. you know, come again. It's my second go around. It's like, all right, if I don't take that as some kind of message that there's something deeper in my life that I need to look at and change, then I'm missing a huge opportunity <laughs> And, yeah. and putting myself at, at risk of mm-hmm. getting some kind of gynecologic cancer triple crown. So yeah. um, <laughs> I don't want that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, I know we're all going to die of something, but 
Yeah. You know? And if I'm going to have a cancer recurrence, can we wait till I'm like 90? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I'm done and old. So, so mm-hmm. I was just asking how far out from the second surgery are mm-hmm. you? So where are you in that surveillance period? Oh, wow. Well, that's great, yeah. though. Yeah, that's great. Um, the other thing I would really want all your listeners to know, and Alex, this may have been in your experience as well, is, you know, when you get breast cancer and you have a mastectomy or, and, and, you know, you, once you, once you've reached a, a point in your surgery, you know, the, the two or three months post-op, um, you go to physical therapy quite commonly, mm. right? You're given a refer, you're very commonly given a referral to physical therapy so that you can, you can, you know, stretch out the muscles and the chest muscles so that you right. don't, you know, get some kind of weird, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, shortening of the muscles there and, and can't use your arm properly. Mm-hmm. When you get an abdominal surgery, like you do for an endometrial or a ovarian cancer, you are not given any kind of referral to physical therapy or Pilates right. or anything mm-hmm. to rebuild your core muscles. They have cut into your, your, your core muscles <laughs> mm-hmm. to remove organs. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, you're on your own, start walking. And, and not given any guidance as to how to do proper recovery to rebuild your core so that you don't have yeah. things like, um, well, if you, if you, if you had a vulvar cancer, say, or an ovarian where they left your uterus in, you don't have a uterine prolapse. Um, you don't have, um, you don't have issues with incontinence. You don't, I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen mm-hmm. from having a weak pelvic floor. Yeah, you can have a, a bladder exactly. prolapse. And you're kind of left yeah. to yeah. your own devices on that one. And, yeah. And- well, interestingly enough, Alex and I learned a lot. We have interviewed <laughs> two physical therapists who specialize in the pelvic yeah. floor. And we really never had a clue that that was a thing. Um, but we learned so much and we were so excited to be able to share that with our listeners. Both of these physical therapists just had a ton of information. And um, so that's been real exciting for us. And I'm glad that you mentioned that again, yeah. for people to be an advocate mm-hmm. for themselves, to be referred to a PT for just that. Yeah. Thing. And just, you know, as we were talking earlier, how um, science and research is behind in a lot of ways for a lot of She's different 20, areas. 20 years behind of. of yeah. I well, and it. so is physical therapy. You know, it's um, when we were talking uh, with both of our physical therapists, um, they were sharing with us that, you know, yes, it was a thing, but it really has come to be its own entity that there are pelvic floor specialists now. Um and even, you know, even though they exist, not everybody knows about them. I certainly was not referred to one, um, no. you know, which I kind of feel like I should have been just to get an evaluation even to make sure that, yeah. you know, everything was the way it was supposed to be. I think every woman who has a hysterectomy should be referred to as with their breast. Absolutely. And, and I wasn't either, but I, I had been taking, I had a Pilates instructor that I worked with mm-hmm. and, and, and oh. so, and we had been, you know, occasionally we'd do private sessions and, and so when I was at three months, because I had a, um, uh, I had the laparotomy. I didn't have laparoscopic for the, mm-hmm. the second one because the tumor was too big um, to remove it safely. Uh. And um, I, I was like, hey, let's start working. Like, yeah. And just slowly rebuilding. And it took, it took a long wow. time. Wow. Mm. 
Yeah. Wow. Well, I wish, um, I know we're oh, kind of okay. running yeah. um, into a longer time, but I would love to hear, you talked about how you do some mm-hmm. coaching and I would love to hear a little bit about that. And I'm sure it could benefit our listeners to hear, you know, what you do, how you got into it, how you find a coach in your area, if they're looking for somebody. So could you help us yeah, with that? So um, I'm working now as a cancer coach. Um, one of the things that, that I felt really strongly after my first um, cancer treatment was I really wanted to help give back um, to other people, especially mm-hmm. women who had cancer. And, um, and I didn't really, I, I sort of did it partially, but, but not wholeheartedly. And then the second time around, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somebody's trying to tell me something. <laughs> and then um, I was working with a, a, a mentor um, for my, my right. I was, I was going to go like, okay, I'm going to embrace my creative career. This was part of a big change. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to start, uh, you know, writing and trying to get my writing published and all this kind of stuff. And, and he, and he turned around and said, that's great, but you should be a cancer coach. And I was like, that's wow. a thing. And he was like, yeah. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and wow. So I started doing that. And, and, um, I, you know, I have a, you know, years of being in therapy and a 20 year daily meditation practice. So, you know, I had something that I found, you know, plus all this interest in integrative care and so forth and having been through it twice myself. So, so, um, it's, it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm currently undergoing a coaching certification. Uh, Oh, wow. I'm going to be official for whatever that whatever that's mm-hmm. worth. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it's, it's, it's a combination of patient advocacy. So helping, helping the client advocate for themselves mm-hmm. um, and, and helping mm-hmm. to, to steer them towards like what kind of kinds of questions they need to be asking um, and uh, you know, how to get your medical records, how to get um, you know, the doctors that you need helping to build your treatment team. Right. So not just your, not just your oncologist or your gynecological oncologist, but also like, are you, are, do you have an integrated medicine doctor that you're seeing who's helping to run labs to look at like what underlying causes might be there that, that a regular oncologist Mm -hmm. isn't going to look at, um, helping to assess what other, um, alternative treatment modalities, um, that, and it depends on the person. Like some people, they're like, right. I want to be a hundred percent holistic. Some people mm-hmm. are like, I want to be a hundred percent conventional. And, and, and more and more people are in the middle are, are wanting a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the reason for that yeah. is that a lot of these integrative mod- modalities, like the supplements and the herbs and the, and acupuncture and massage and, and, and therapy, um, like traditional, uh, therapy, all these things really support the diet nutrition, right? They really support mm-hmm. conventional mm-hmm. Um, treatments and to undergo surgery and, and chemotherapy, especially without some kind of additional support to help your body yeah. to withstand that and recover from it. You know, it, you're, you're making it harder on yourself than it needs mm-hmm. to be. Basically. Well, in conventional mm. medicine, as good as it is for what it does it focuses on one like laser focused thing, right? They're yep. going to cut it out. They're going to give you chemicals to get it out. They're going to radiate it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're whole people. And so having a therapy, having physical therapy, having meditation, or, you know, like you said, massage or um, acupuncture, all of those things, you know, we're a whole person. And so it's awesome that you're able to help people kind of, you know, see their menu of options and pull together what 
will help them best survive their cancer. Right. And then also really helping people with the mindset pieces, like helping to develop sort of, you know, like more humor, more positive mindset, but, but not like, oh, I'm going to be really positive and pretend nothing bad's happening. No, also like, you know, any negative emotion, you know, we call negative emotions, right? But, but these, these, these kinds of, uh, these, these kinds of feelings and emotions that can really, you know, drag us down, make us feel depressed, make us feel hopeless, um, help mm. and, and, and fears and so forth, you know, anger, helping us to face those and, and, and process through them. Um, and, and then if, you know, if you need like really deep, you know, like trauma intervention, then referring you to a therapist who's really, yeah. you know, qualified mm-hmm. to to help people mm-hmm. process through that um and then you know basic stress reduction you know all these kinds of piece diet um you know mm-hmm. interventions and finding finding all of that so yeah that's that's what i do well that's really cool wow. and, you know even someone who has gone through cancer and has had family members go through different cancers um i did not know that cancer coach was a thing and yeah. you know no nope. and for you know mom and i have talked about how great it has been for me that mom has been able to advocate for me and kind of be the bad cop in some ways where you know if something need, if she needs to push really hard i don't have to have that kind of relationship with my doctor it would would have been really great should i not have her to know that there's a coach who can kind of be that person, um, right. you know, so yeah. that you can maintain that relationship with your doctor, but you can still get the care you need. Absolutely. Yeah. I can be on FaceTime, like during a, during an appointment and be like, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I love that that exists. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And I think it's really wonderful that you uh, turned your story into something so positive that can help people. I know that's what Alex has done in starting this podcast, it just being able to take what you've experienced and help others with it. Um, there's just nothing yeah. better, you know, to have a good outcome from what happened yeah, to you. Have it mean something, have it, have it be able yeah, to be a benefit absolutely. to other people. Absolutely. That is just yeah. so wonderful. I yeah. am so happy that you were able to carve some time out for us today and um, yes, thank we're you. We're just so looking forward to continuing conversations and really getting the word out about Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. Um, so thank you, Mariette, for joining us. We just appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you guys as well. You're doing such a you're doing such amazing work. It's it's wonderful. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Down There Aware. Remember, we are in Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month this month of September, and today, September 14th, we are wearing purple, so if you are listening to this on the 14th, be sure to wear your purple, take a picture, and tag us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all down there aware. And don't forget, we're raising money for the Foundation for Women's Cancer, and that is on our Facebook page. So go ahead, go over there and um, give what you can. We would really appreciate it. All of that money is going directly to the foundation through Facebook. And as a special bonus... Mom and I will be donating $1 for every listen we get this month. No matter which episode you're listening to, if you listen to it in the month of September, we are donating a dollar for that listen. So be sure to share the podcast, share the episodes um, on social media to your friends and family. We really want to raise as much awareness and funding for the Foundation for Women's Cancer. Thanks for listening.